Chapter 44 of Whispering Smith by Frank Spearman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 44 Crawling Stone Wash. Where the little Crawling Stone River tears out of the Mission Mountain, it has left a grayish white gap that may be seen for many miles. This is the head of the North Crawling Stone Valley. Twenty miles to the right, the big river itself bursts through the Mission Hills in the canyon known as the Box. Between the confluence of Big and Little Crawling Stone, and on the east side of Little Crawling Stone, lies a vast waste. Standing in the midst of this frightful eruption from the heart of the mountains, one sees, as far as the eye can reach, a landscape utterly forbidding. North for sixty miles lie the high chains of the Mission Range, and a cup-like configuration of the mountains close to the valley affords a resting place for the deepest snows of winter and a precipitous escape for the torrents of June. Here, when the sun reaches its summer height, or a sweet grass wind blows soft, or a cloudburst above the peaks strikes the southerly face of the range, Winter unfrocks in a single night. A glacier of snow melts within twenty-four hours into a torrent of lava and bursts with incredible fury from a thousand gorges. When this happens, nothing withstands. Whatever lies in the path of the flood is swept from the face of the earth. The mountains, assailed in a moment with the ferocity of a hundred storms, are ripped and torn like hills of clay. The frosted scale of the granite, the desperate root of the cedar, the poised nest of the eagle, the clutch of the crannied vine, the split and start of the mountainside are all as one before the June thaw. At its height, little crawling stone with a head of forty feet is a choking flood of rock. Mountains torn and bleeding vomit boulders of thirty, sixty, a hundred tons like pebbles upon the valley. Even there they find no permanent resting place. Each succeeding year sees them torn, groaning from their beds in the wash. New masses of rock are hurled upon them. New waters lift them in fresh caprice and the crash and the grinding echo in the hills like a roar of mountain thunder. Where the wash covers the valley, nothing lives. The fertile earth has long been buried under the mountain debris. It supports no plant life beyond the scantiest deposit of weed plant seed, and the rocky scurf, spreading like a leprosy over many miles, scars the face of the green earth. This is the crawling stone wash. Exhausted by the fury of its few yearly weeks of activity, little crawling stone runs for the greater part of the year, a winding, shallow stream through a bed of whitened boulders where lizards sun themselves and trout lurk in shaded pools. When Whispering Smith and his companions were fairly started on the last day of their ride, it was toward this riff in the Mission Range that the trail led them. Sinclair, with consummate cleverness, had rejoined his companions, but the attempt to get into the cache and his reckless ride into Medicine Bend 
had reduced their chances of escape to a single outlet, and that they must find up Crawling Stone Valley. The necessity of it was spelled in every move the pursued men had made for twenty-four hours. They were riding the pick of mountain horseflesh and covering their tracks by every device known to the high country. Behind them, made prudent by unusual danger, rode the best men the mountain division could muster for the final effort to bring them to account. The fast riding of the early week had given way to the pace of caution. No trail sign was overlooked, no point of concealment directly approached, no hiding place left unsearched. The tension of a long day of this work was drawing to a close when the sun set and left the big wash in the shadow of the mountains. On the higher ground to the right, Kennedy and Scott were riding where they could command the gullies of the precipitous left bank of the river. High on the left bank itself, worming his way like a snake from point to point of concealment through the scanty brush of the mountainside, crawled Wickwire commanding the pockets in the right bank. Closer to the river on the right and following the trail itself over shale and rock and between scattered boulders, Whispering Smith, low on his horse's neck, rode slowly. It was almost too dark to catch the slight discolorations where pebbles had been disturbed on a flat surface or the caulk of a horseshoe had slipped on the uneven face of a ledge, and he had halted under an uplift to wait for wickwire on the distance left to advance, when half a mile below him a horseman crossing the river slowly passed a gap in the rocks and disappeared below the next bend. He was followed in a moment by a second rider and a third. Whispering Smith knew he had not been seen. He had flushed the game, and, wheeling his horse, rode straight up the river bank to high ground, where he could circle around widely below them. They had slipped between his line and wickwires and were doubling back, following the dry bed of the stream. It was impossible to recall Kennedy and Scott without giving an alarm but by a quick detour he could at least hold the quarry back for twenty minutes with his rifle, and in that time Kennedy and Scott could come up. Less than half an hour of daylight remained. If the outlaws could slip down the wash and out into the crawling stone valley, they had every chance of getting away in the night. And if the third man should be Barney Ribstock, Whispering Smith knew that Sinclair thought only of escape. Smith alone of their pursuers could now intercept them, but a second hope remained. On the left, Wickwire was high enough to command every turn in the bed of the river. He might see them, and could force them to cover with his rifle even at long range. Casting up the chances, whispering Smith, riding faster over the uneven ground than anything but sheer recklessness would have prompted, hastened across the waste. His rifle lay in his hand, and he had pushed his horse to a run. A single fearful instinct crowded now upon the long strain of the week. A savage fascination burned like a fever in his veins, 
and he meant that they should not get away. Taking chances that would have shamed him in cooler moments, he forced his horse at the end of the long ride to within a hundred paces of the river, threw his lines, slipped like a lizard from the saddle, and, darting with incredible swiftness from rock to rock, gained the water's edge. From up the long shadows of the wash there came a wail of an owl. From it he knew that Wickwire had seen them and was warning him. But he had anticipated the warning and stood below where the hunted men must ride. He strained his eyes over the waste of rock above. For one half hour of daylight he would have sold in that moment ten years of his life. What could he do if they should be able to secrete themselves until dark between him and Wickwire? Gliding under cover of huge rocks up the dry watercourse, he reached a spot where the floods had scooped a long, hollow curve out of a soft ledge in the bank, leaving a stretch of smooth sand on the bed of the stream. At the upper point, great boulders pushed out in the river. He could not inspect the curve from the spot he had gained without reckless exposure, but he must force the little daylight left to him. Climbing completely over the lower point, he advanced cautiously, and from behind a sheltering spur stepped out upon an overhanging table of rock and looked across the river bottom. Three men had halted on the sand within the curve. Two lay on their rifles under the upper point, a hundred and twenty paces from Whispering Smith. The third man, Seagrew, less than fifty yards away, had got off his horse and was laying down his rifle when the hoot-owl screeched again, and he looked uneasily back. They had chosen for their halt a spot easily defended, and needed only darkness to make them safe, when Smith, stepping out into plain sight, threw forward his hand. They heard his sharp call to pitch up, and the men under the point jumped. Seagrew had not yet taken his hand from his rifle. He threw it to his shoulder. As closely together as two fingers of the right hand can be struck twice in the palm of the left, two rifle shots cracked across the wash. Two bullets passed so close in flight they might have struck. One cut the dusty hair from Smith's temple and slit the brim of his hat above his ear. The other struck Seagrew under the left eye, plowed through the roof of his mouth, and coming out below his ear, splintered the rock at his back. The shock alone would have staggered a bullock, but Seagrew, laughing, came forward, pumping his gun. Sinclair, at a hundred and twenty yards, cut instantly into the fight, and the ball from his rifle creased the alkali that crusted Whispering Smith's unshaven cheek. As he fired, he sprang to cover. For Seagrew and Smith there was no cover. For one or both it was death in the open, and Seagrew, with his rifle at his cheek, walked straight into it. Taking for a moment the fire of the three guns, Whispering Smith stood a perfect target outlined against the sky. They whipped the dust from his coat, tore the sleeve from his wrist, and ripped the blouse collar from his neck, but he felt no bullet shock. 
He saw before him only the buckle of Seagrew's belt forty paces away, and sent bullet after bullet at the gleam of brass between the sights. Both men were using high-pressure guns, and the deadly shock of the slugs made Seagrew twitch and stagger. The man was dying as he walked. Smith's hand was racing with the lever, and had a cartridge jammed, the steel would have snapped like a match. It was beyond human endurance to support the leaden death. The little square of brass between the sights wavered. Seagrew stumbled, doubled on his knees, and staggering, plunged loosely forward on the sand. Whispering Smith threw his rifle toward the boulder behind which Sinclair and Barney Rebstock had disappeared. Suddenly he realized that the bullets from the point were not coming his way. He was aware of a second rifle duel above the bend. Wickwire, worming his way down the stream, had uncovered Sinclair and a young Rebstock from behind. A yell between the shots rang across the wash, and the cringing figure of a man ran out toward Whispering Smith with his hands high in the air and pitched headlong on the ground. It was the skulker, Barney Rebstock, driven out by Wickwire's fire. The shooting ceased. Silence fell upon the gloom of the dusk. Then came a calling between Smith and Wickwire, and a signaling of pistol shots for their companions. Kennedy and Bob Scott dashed down toward the riverbed on their horses. Seagrew lay on his face. Young Rebstock sat with his hands around his knees on the sand. Above him, at some distance, Wickwire and Smith stood before a man who leaned against the sharp cheek of the boulder at the point. In his hands, his rifle was held across his lap, just as he had dropped on his knee to fire. He had never moved after he was struck. His head, drooping a little, rested against the rock, and his hat lay on the sand. His heavy beard had sunk into his chest, and he kneeled in the shadow, asleep. Scott and Kennedy knew him. In the mountains there was no double for Murray Sinclair. When he jumped behind the point to pick Whispering Smith off the ledge, he had laid himself directly under Wickwire's fire across the wash. The first shot of the cowboy at two hundred yards had passed as he knelt through both temples. They laid him at Seagrew's side. The camp was made beside the dead men in the wash. "'You'd better not take him to Medicine Bend,' said Whispering Smith, sitting late with Kennedy before the dying fire. "'It would only mean that much more unpleasant talk and notoriety for her. The inquest can be held on the Frenchman. Take him to his own ranch and telegraph the folks in Wisconsin. God knows whether they will want to hear. But his mother's there yet. But if half what Barney has told us tonight is true—' It would be better if no one ever heard. End of chapter 44